Before you get too comfortable, I invite you to turn to the book of Jude, just before the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. I'd invite you to stand as I read for you verses 1 through 3, as we continue our introduction into this little but powerful letter known to us as the letter or epistle of Jude. I'll read Jude, verses 1 through 3. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. Abraham Lincoln once asked an audience, how many legs does a dog have if you count the tail as a leg? The perceptive audience answered, five. Lincoln told them that the answer was four. He said to them, the fact that you call the tail a leg did not make the tail a leg. If you will allow me an opportunity to speak for just a moment, something I don't tend to do, but a bit of commentary on where we find ourselves as a culture. Over the past several months, and really this is the culmination of several decades of decadence, there's been such a radical shift in thinking about morality, sexuality, and other social issues that even conservative thinkers, as well as those within the evangelical church, they, they've used a label. As we look and see everything that's going on in, in gender bending and, and non-binary thinking and Conservative thinkers, as well as evangelical leaders, have used a term. They've said, our culture is confused. Now, we might want to agree with that. We say our culture is confused. People are confused about gender. They're confused about what is a woman. They're confused about what constitutes sound culture-benefiting morality. But how I wish it were simply confusion. What we are failing to recognize is that what we are facing as a culture is not just some confused people, but it is an all-out assault on the very truth of God and his word concerning what he has created and how he has created it. Certainly there is confusion, but ultimately there's a full-scale war on the truth of God as revealed in the word of God. What we are seeing is the unveiling before our eyes of what I would say is a methodical, sinister, and ultimately demonic attack and insult on all that God has said is good, all that God has said is wholesome. And sadly, too many of us Christians are sitting back and watching it happen and not saying anything or not saying what we ought we have people who are telling us that gender is not binary, 
Yet that is a lie that props itself up against what God has clearly revealed. We have people that are telling us that if a person, or even more heinous, if a child identifies as being of the opposite sex from what he or she was born, then it must be so. But I'm telling you that just because you call the tail a leg does not make it a leg. What I'm about to share with you may seem off topic, but I assure you it is not. We are in the midst of a cult, a religious cult that is so militant, so prolific, so powerful that it has, not, that it has made inroads not only into our culture, not only into our politics, not only into our schools, not only into our courts, but it is making its way now into so-called evangelical churches. What is a cult? What is this cult? It is what we might call the LGBTQ cult. We might simply refer to it today in, in its very short term, a transgender cult. Let me be clear, the transgender cult is profoundly anti-truth and it is anti-science. But what makes it most destructive is its propagation of lies are so blatant they go against the most basic truths of what it means to be human, and specifically a human male or human female. And the last time I read in the book of Genesis, the very beginning of all things, God made them male and female. The propaganda is so packed that it is able to warp a person's understanding of themselves. I've called it a trans uh, agenda, a, a cult, because it is engaged with the same tactics that you see cults use to destabilize a, a, a culture, to destabilize the family. The nuclear family, we know as being one husband and father, one mother, wife and mother, the children that are born to them or adopted by them, living together in one house. Let me tell you very clearly, the transgender LGBTQ agenda hates the family. It will do everything it can to destroy what God has said forms the very basis of any culture. Why? Because the trans agenda people know that children raised in a stable family, loved and guided by parents who are committed to marriage, are far more difficult to persuade, far more difficult to indoctrinate with their demonic propaganda. So what is the call? The church needs to be the place of the family, to uphold the family. To be sure, a strong family is no guarantee that a child may not be converted to such perversion, but it is far less likely that the groomers, those intent on perverting and destroying our children, can accomplish that task in a strong family context. Such groomers' goals, then, are to destroy family bonds, separate children from their parents, so as to make children far easier targets, and we're seeing this being propagated in our public school systems. It's one of the things that is being used against the Christian church right now. And so we see this assault on the family where teachers, unions, and other organizations are continuing to put this wedge between children and their parents. 
And if you've been paying attention to the news, and you got to have to listen and drill down to get all of this because it's so glossed over, many schools have policies that instruct teachers to intentionally hide from parents a child's identification of being gay or transgender. Even though there has been backlash and pushback, as we've heard from some parents and conservative groups, many teachers remain resolved to hide a children's gender confusion or sexual identity from their parents. Why? Even in schools where there are policies that say, that instruct teachers to inform the parents of such, teachers are refusing to do this. Why? So they're saying, we want to respect the wishes of the student. What they are doing, in fact, relishing in having an intimate knowledge about the child that the parent does not have. That is a cult tactic. That is an indoctrination tactic. A cult leader seeks to form a bond with a recruit that supersedes any other bond that he or she may have, most especially with other family members. This is an attack on the family, beloved. It is an attack on the family as God has designed it. It's an attack on how God has made male and female, but I'm telling you it is worse than this. This wedge or crowbar that seeks to separate now children from their parents is increasingly taking shape in the courts. Just one account that took place in Canada as a man lost custody of his own daughter because he refused to affirm her as a boy. He affirmed that she was his daughter, not a son, a daughter that he and his wife conceived and, and raised. He was taken to court, and the court ruled against him, and he lost everything for standing for the truth. This is happening and will continue to happen more frequently as Canada has recently passed a law that's called the Anti-Conversion Therapy Law. This law states that it is illegal for anyone, including parents, to refuse to use biologically incorrect pronouns for a child. So if your child says, you have to, uh, I identify now as a, a girl, you have to call me she or her, and you don't as a parent, you can go to court and lose custody of your child. That's against the law in Canada. It is a criminal act, and parents are being jailed, and their children are taken away from them. But you say, well, pastor, that's Canada. That's not happening in the United States. It is. It is. It has happened, and it's continuing to happen. Back in 2018, parents lost custody of their daughter in Ohio for refusing to allow her to medically transition into a boy. And so a judge legally kidnapped the girl and awarded custody to the grandparents whom the judge deemed as being willing to allow this girl to be nothing less than drugged and mutilated. There is another account of a mother who happens to be a staunch progressive Democrat and feminist who does not believe in traditional gender roles, yet she lost custody of her 12-year-old daughter because she refused to affirm her daughter's deluded idea that she was a boy. The court removed this mother's parenting rights from her, and she has not seen her daughter for three years. So from 12 to 15 years old. The court removed her rights. She's, not, she's only allowed to communicate with her by means of U.S. mail. The story is so convoluted and so gut-wrenching, but this is the culture we find ourselves in. The court 
uh, the court ordered an investigation into the mother's life, hoping to find some kind of abuse in the home. And yet when they could find no abuse had taken place in the home, they said, because she will not affirm what her daughter has asked, then she cannot live in that home. She can have no contact with her. But it gets more sinister than this. The mother was forced to negotiate a deal uh, uh, that in exchange for giving up all of her legal rights to see the daughter, she would be assured in writing that her daughter would not undergo medical transition without permission, without her permission or a court order. Can you imagine as a parent having to make that kind of decision? If I refuse the court's order, they will take her and they will mutilate her. If I say, okay, I won't see her anymore, I might not see her mutilated. I will never see her again, but the court could still come back at some time and mutilate her if they so desire. The courts are literally cutting up children in the name of the transgender agenda. In an interview, the mother explains why she rejected the idea that she should have simply relented and allowed her daughter to do, in the words of the court, take the lead and do whatever she wants. The mother said, and this is interesting, this is not a believer. The mother said, quote, I am not willing to do that. I don't think that it's good parenting. It's my responsibility not to hook my boat to hers. It is my responsibility to be a lighthouse, to be something stable that she can see, some guide that she has that, sh that will always be there, unquote. Her other politics aside, the mother got it right on that point. But the transgender cult is content with nothing less than full compliance with their truth-hating, anti-science rhetoric. This is the trajectory of our culture at this time. Now. What on earth does this have to do with Jude? As I've already said, this has everything to do with this letter. For Jude was addressing an apostasy, a falling away from the truth in the culture and in the church. Jude was addressing this, this falling away from the faith, from, from the truth and the precepts and principles of God's word. Some will say yes, but but that's speaking of those falling away from the faith as found in the church, right? Falling away from the scriptures. Well, what we are seeing taking place in the secular realm, some will say it's not taking place in the church, but I, I just told you we were seeing this. That's the wrong thinking. To begin with, so much of what we are experiencing right now in the secular political realm has to do with so many who have professed to know Jesus Christ. We have people in our Congress, in our Senate, in our uh, House of Representatives, in our White House, who profess to know Jesus, who say that they know the Judeo-Christian values, and yet they are falling away from the faith. Maybe they never had it. I might uh, grant that. But to profess one thing and not follow it is still a following away. The church is not having an impact upon the culture. The culture is having its impact upon the church. And churches are falling like dominoes because they will not stand up for the truth. The lies of the LGBTQ and 
uh, community have crept into churches. It's being embraced by churches. It's being espoused by churches. And even some, if I were to drop names, you would be amazed at the names you would hear and go, wait a minute, I, they would never have, have stood for that, but they are. To be very clear, beloved, there are binary sexes. Male and female is determined by God. Marriage is one man and one woman. Sex is for the covenant of marriage alone. This is the biblical view. The church has failed to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. And our culture is paying the price. But one of the questions that is answered by this letter is this. If we are to see such things, if this is the culture that we are going to be living in, if even in the church we, we see this corruption and apostasy, this falling away, if it's only going to continue, as you're saying, to escalate to such a horrific and sickening degree as to what we're seeing in our own lifetime, then how can it be said that God is truly in control? How can we believe God is sovereign? How is it that this is what we're getting if God rules over all? And since such things are so seemingly out of control and so increasingly dangerous, isn't it possible that by being engaged in such a battle, that if we... If we uh, we might lose our salvation. We, we, and I know some of you are thinking, well, we, we don't believe that you can lose your salvation, but there are people who are thinking, if this is the way everything is, we could lose our salvation. Having first looked a bit then at who wrote this book, we see that in verse 1, Jude, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, who preferred, however, to identify himself as a slave, a doulos of Christ, rather than the Lord's half-brother, one preferring, listen, the idea of slavery to Christ, the slave to righteousness, rather than a slave to the lies and the mistruths of the apostates. We come to the end of verse 1 with, with this most profound reminder to believers living in the days of apostasy. And we took some time to consider these, but I want to run through them again because it is so important that we, we would recognize that as we live in these times when so many, even those who have previously would have been regarded as firmly in the faith, have fallen away, we need to have these reminders govern our thinking as we engage our culture and we battle against such falsehoods. And what are those reminders? Well, let's look at them. The reminders given to believers, we see it at the end of verse 1. The believers are the called, beloved, and kept. As believers find themselves in increasingly dark and dismal times, in when there is truthlessness abounding, when there is evil and destructiveness in this world where apostasy abounds, a rejection of the truth becomes commonplace. And you can look the truth right in the eye and somebody will tell you that it's a lie and you have to stand up and say, no, it is a lie. What you're saying is a lie. Here is the truth. We need to remember that we cannot replace God's truths with destructive lies. But that is what our culture wants to do. Replace the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. 
who is forever blessed, according to Romans chapter 1. So yes, apostasy will increase. And as it does, all the destructive dangers will escalate with it. We're going to read more and more horrific stories as they mutilate children. They've been doing that through abortion with Roe, versus, uh, Roe v. Wade being overturned, we're thinking, oh, well, now we have a reprieve. No, the transgender uh, agenda is now coming after your children just in a different way. And Jude begins by reminding believers that as you are in that kind of culture, when you are in an anti-truth, anti-science, anti-God culture, when you think you have to fear politicians and the medical experts and the scientists, Jude starts off and says, you are the called. You are the beloved. And you are kept for Jesus Christ. I don't know how much better it gets than that. I don't know what other joy can come from all of that. In other words, we have nothing to fear by standing for the truth. Believers are called, loved, and kept by God. This is how the letter begins. And then recall that the letter ends with that reinforcement of that truth. Look at verses 24 and 25, the song that we're trying to learn so that you can have this memorized. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Do you believe that? You need not stumble. You may not delight in some of the results of standing up for the truth, but your God is with you. Your God will take care of what needs to be taken care of. And it may not always go according to the way that we desire, but it will always be, as Paul reminds us, for our good as he causes all things, all suffering, all trials, all tribulations, he causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. So when everything looks bad, when things appear to be at their worst, when it seems it will cost you something or everything to be a Christian, Jude reminds us of the security of the believer. God started this work. You didn't. God will finish this work because you can't. From beginning to end, end, salvation is from the Lord. And everything in between belongs to him. In the good seasons and in the bad, if God is your God, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then you have been and are currently and always will be, guess what? Kept from stumbling. The believer will never stumble so as to lose his or her salvation. You will be made by God to stand in his presence, but not in trembling, blameless, with great joy, 
Why? Because you will be covered not with a righteousness of your own based upon what you have seemingly sought to accomplish for him. You will be covered in the full, complete, and glorious righteousness of Christ. And therefore, you stand in his presence not only blameless, but with great joy because there will be no hesitation. I don't know if you've been in those situations where you've been given something and in the back of your mind you know you really don't deserve it. You know that you shouldn't be receiving this you know that these accolades don't really belong to you because you know what's in your heart and it takes it robs something away from the joy but not so when you are in Christ and you stand before God covered in the righteousness of Christ you will be blameless and you will have great joy this is the promise made to the called this is the promise for those who are the chosen ones, those invited by God to God and for God to be the possession of a most privileged position. You are the called. Romans 1, 7, believers are called, the same word, to be saints. Literally, we are the holy ones. We are the set-apart ones. There is to be such a distinction in our lives that people know that we do not belong to the world. We do not crave the world. We belong to Christ. And we love and serve Jesus with our hearts, soul, minds, and strength. The idea of being the saints, the, the chosen ones, the, the holy ones. Beloved, this is to be the totally unique ones. May I put it to you in these terms. We are to be so incredibly unique when we're put up against those who are the uncalled. The called are to distinguish them, themselves by their calling. To be called is to be summoned by God, not only to the position of saints, but to an incredible position of being called what? What can be better than being called a saint? It would be called a child of God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. How great a love that we would be called, that somehow we sinners would be called what? The children of God, and such we are. In our pre-service prayer, we were reminded of Isaac Watts, and he wrote a hymn called, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed? And over the years, churches have changed one line of that opening, uh, hy- uh, of the opening stanza of that hymn. And, and it's this, it's, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head? And now most translations today say, for sinners such as I. But Isaac Watts didn't say it that way. He said, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I. He wanted there to be this understanding of the tremendous contrast between what it means before I've been saved by the blood of Christ to what I've been saved. I would be counted less than a worm before knowing Jesus Christ. But now I am not just a worm. I'm no longer a worm. I am not simply a saint. I am a child of the living God. What parent is there that's like our God? Who is like the Lord our God? Who is our, uh, uh, he who is our heavenly father, the one who knows our needs before we even ask. He who disciplines us because he loves us, because he's conforming us to the image of his beloved son, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so when you feel lost, when you feel alone, when you feel confused about the truth, you need to come back to this first reminder in the book of Jude that you are the called. You have been invited by the God of the universe to be his. The God of truth has called you to himself. Obviously, related to this being chosen and called is being loved by God. Then The second, we're beloved. The beloved of God. Literally, the word reads this way. We are the most loved ones. When was the last time you meditated on that? I am the most loved one of God. Now, wait a minute. There seems to be a conflict here because God said to his son, this is my beloved, my most loved son. But as you see, if we're in Christ, we become the most loved. We are as much beloved children of God as Jesus Christ is the beloved son of God, if you believe. That's an amazing thing. All the affection, all the adoration, all the delight, all the joy, all the the pride that a father could have, all the joy which God loves Jesus. He so loves those who by faith in Jesus belong to him. You are beloved. Again, God the Father, Matthew 17, 5 said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so for those of us who are in Christ, guess what? We are so beloved. But how can this be? How can this be? What says the scripture? Well, I just read for you from 1 John 1, 3. Or 3, 1. I'll get my dyslexia working there. Look at verse 2. Let me read verse, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. That's a call to meditate on this, that we would be called the children of God, and such we are, beloved, same word with which God has referred to his son, beloved, we, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. We will be covered with the righteousness of Christ. And that's all God sees. And he loves us in Christ. We will be like Jesus. Without trace or stain of sin. We will be like Jesus. In glorified. Immortal. Incorruptible. No longer made sickable no longer needing glassables. We will be in resurrected bodies. I say that one because the first thing I do every morning is grab my glasses. Beloved, we do not fear the immorality of this world. We do not tremble at the unleashing of the such vile and destroying ideologies as the LGBTQ agenda. Why? Because we are loved by the living God. Paul in, in Romans 8, verses 31 through 37, and I know it's kind of small up there. Let me read this text for you, and, and notice how it ends. Don't rush to the end, but notice how this ends. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with Jesus freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? 
God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And then those powerful words. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Now, considering what I've read to you about our culture just a moment ago and considering what you know about our news and our politics and our world, would you listen to verses 35 and 36? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation? Let's just play. uh, Let's do a little interaction. This is rhetorical, but I want you to say no after these questions, okay? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, whatever they may be, because, well, I'm jumping ahead. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who what? Loved us. You need to be reminded, believer, you are the called and you are the loved. When things seem dismal, you rest on these truths. When we are overwhelmed by the force and the power of the sinful culture and the sad realities that many who have professed fidelity to Christ and his truth who have in fact fallen away, we must remember we are the called, we are the loved, we are the chosen, we are those who overwhelmingly conquer because Jesus loves us and Jesus wins. But we note one other fact. We are the called, we are the loved, and at the end of verse 1, we are kept for Jesus. It can be tempting to look at the world we live in to see the outright abuse being perpetrated on our children. To see people lose their rights, their livelihood, even their children, and wonder if such were to happen to us, would that indicate that God has abandoned us? If we have to face a trial in our church of one of our children being taken away by the government because of a refusal to call the tail a leg? Does that mean God has forsaken us? That God is punishing us? Beloved, God is indeed judging the nations. And like righteous Jeremiah, who faithfully proclaimed God's truth, who was punished by the religious leaders, and who was even taken away into captivity to Babylon, along with all those who were unbelieving around him, Just because we are currently caught up in the midst of God's wrath, being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness, beloved, this does not negate God's sovereignty or your security. If we read the closing words of Romans 
uh, verses 38, uh, Romans 8, verses 38 and 39, we learn that living in this world does not mean the absence of difficulties. If you think that being a Christian means life gets easier, you have been misinformed by someone because Scripture doesn't teach it. In fact, it says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. To, to be a Christian does not mean that you will be kept from trials and tribulations. It does mean that you will be kept through them. You will be brought through them, you will experience the full wonder of God's deliverance and love. We read in verses 38 and 39 those very familiar words, for I am convinced, I am fully persuaded, I will not be moved from this precept or principle that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, whether it's a politically created thing, a medically created thing, nothing will be able to separate us from what the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord you are the called you are the loved you are the kept for Jesus Jude reminds us that believers are kept for Jesus it's an interesting text because it's not that we're being kept by Jesus although he does do that that's not what Jude is after here we are kept for Jesus it is true Jesus keeps believers. We read in John 10, verses 27 through 28, we've heard these words, right? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Sounds like we're being kept by Jesus to me. <coughs> yes, Jesus keeps his own. But what does Jesus say in the very next verse? Verse 29. My father, who has given these sheep to me, because he's the one that gave them to me, he's greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I mean, it's like, doubling down right I mean who's going to snatch you out of Jesus hand tell me who can do it but Jesus says it's something even greater than that because the father's got you as well ultimately we are kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time first Peter 1 5 but notice again that the truth here is that believers are kept for Jesus. What does that mean, beloved? The idea is that God keeps believers. He guards. He watches over them. He protects them. Listen, for the sake of Jesus, for the glory of Jesus, if God were to allow one of his own to lose their salvation, it would diminish the glory of Jesus Christ. And so you're kept, not for your glory, not even primarily for your own benefit. You're being kept for Jesus so that Jesus, at the final day when you are resurrected and you are standing with him, that he receives the praise and the glory and the honor and the dominion and the power forever and ever. Amen.
He will not allow those for whom Christ died to be lost. Again, this would diminish Jesus. It would make the work on the cross insufficient. It would suggest that something in this world is more powerful than what Jesus did on the cross, and may it never be. If you think apostates and liars and fools could somehow tear a genuine believer away from God, then just remember the God of the universe, the one who called all things into existence in the space of six days and all very good, the one who parted the Red Sea, the one who stayed the mouths of lions, the one who, whom no one can thwart his purposes and say to him, what is it that you have done? This is the one that keeps you. He guards you and he protects you so that your life will be a testimony to the glory of Jesus Christ. And so we say what the psalmist put it into this context. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. Now, I know this has largely been reviewed, but we need to hear it over and over again. Beloved, we need to rehearse these truths to ourselves and to one another. You should wake up in the morning and remind yourself, remind your spouse, remind your child, remind some other believer in some random text. Just pick a number for Christian and send, remember this day. You are the called, you are the loved, you are the kept for Jesus. And so we sing a song that says, when I fear my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. God will keep me. God will guard me. He will protect me. Because if I've truly trusted in Christ, I am the called, the loved, and kept by God. This is the believer's status before God. And I just ask, as I pause for a moment, is this your status this morning? You can't just say it's so. You need to know it's so. You need to know that you are a sinner who has sinned against the holy God, that you deserve God's wrath for eternity, but that Jesus has stepped in. He has stepped into time, and he has died on the cross as the punishment for your sin, so that as you have said, Jesus, I believe you took my pain, my punishment, my sin upon yourself, so that I might receive your righteousness. If you receive that by faith, if you've seen that truth change your idea about life and how you live no longer for yourself or this world, but for God, you are the called, the loved, the kept. But I want to move on to verse 2 because I know I'm going at a speedy pace for us here. Let us look at the blessedness of believers in verse 2. We're just gearing up, folks, for verse 3. 
might be there for three months. I don't know. Here's the blessedness of believers. In other words, what blessings does God bestow upon the called, the loved, and the kept? What does he give them that helps them be kept, that keeps them from stumbling? And I know it may just seem almost superficial to us because we see such words on Hallmark greeting cards and such. But there are this, there's, there's this tr- uh, triad of words in verse 2, right? And you, you look at them, and they're, they're so Christian-esque. We don't stop to think what's being said here. May, what does it say? It says, may grace, or excuse me, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. These three qualities not only belong to believers, they're to be multiplied in your experience. And I don't know about you. I, I came home um, from our uh, family unity night, and somebody left me a tray of chocolate cookies. And I was, wow, this is good. Don't need them, but I ate, there's, you know, just this piece of paper, and there's like, I don't know, there's like four cookies there. I ate the cookies. Not all at once. It was like over 15 minutes. <laughs> and I thought, good, they're done. There's like three layers underneath of cookies. Can you imagine experiencing mercy? If you've come to know Jesus Christ and you've experienced the mercy of God, so many, so much of our thinking is warped in this. We, we receive the mercy of God, and it's like it gets old to us. If the mercy of God gets old to you, you don't understand the mercy of God. You actually don't understand yourself. So we're going to look at these things that, that now is a prayer. This is literally a prayer of Jude. It's not just some fancy greeting. May, by prayer, may mercy and peace and love just super abound upon you. May you be drenched. May you be drowned in a sea of mercy and love and peace. Now, it's interesting because Jude takes what is really a standard Jewish greeting, which would be simply this. The standard Jewish greeting, mercy and peace to you. That's standard. So all the Jews would have gotten that. And so Jude kind of throws the curveball now because he says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. A very simplistic view of this verse would be this, that mercy causes a believer to look upward. Peace causes him to look inward. And love causes him to look outward. Let's say that again. Mercy causes the believer to look upward to God. Peace causes the believer to look inward to recognize he's in a right relationship with that living God. And love causes him to look outward to spread that which God has bestowed upon him. But let's look at these one by one. I want you to recognize something very clear that these are from God. 
We don't generate these. God does this. And we got them all at once. I don't know why it happened that way. Takes kind of the, the impact away. Okay, mercy. The first blessing bestowed upon the reader is that of mercy. A rudimentary or very simplistic meaning of mercy is this, not getting what one deserves. It's in the context of judgment. Mercy in the context of sinners deserving the wages of their sin, the punishment of that is eternal damnation, that which we call eternal death. It is interesting to think that mercy is being prayed for these believers. It reminds us that God does not condemn sin in the sinner, but then condone it in the saint. You don't become a Christian so that God just says, okay, now do whatever you want to do. I would dare say that if you are really in touch with Scripture and you know your own self as Scripture reveals, that you are as in much need of God's mercy in this moment as you were when you first came to Jesus Christ. Saints' sin. And while the saints' sin, past, present, and future, have been paid for by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, the committing of sin yet has present consequences, does it not? As I always say, you can choose your sin, but you can't choose the consequence. Sin always separates. You want some, some good reminders? When you choose to sin, you have separated yourself. You've separated yourself from God. You've separated yourself from the one that you've sinned against. Sin seeks to divide. Sin is part of that whole movement in our culture that wants to divide the family and divide the uh, parents and divide the children. And so when a saint sins, although it does not affect his eternal destination, it does result in temporal separation from God, and from those against whom he has sinned. Beloved, saints ought to be so sensitive to sin, so sensitive that at some point the realization that he has sinned causes him grief, remorse, and leads him to but one place, repentance. Dear God, forgive me. I dare say that if any of us think we can get to the end of the day, and not have to go before God and say, God, forgive me for A, B, and C, and X, Y, and Z, and double A, double B, double C. You don't know your own sinful heart. Such a state should cause the saint to remember that he deserves nothing but God's wrath, Every time you sin, it should be a reminder, I do not deserve God's mercy. I only deserve his wrath. I deserve punishment, and if it were not for Christ, that would be me. And then he experiences afresh this mercy of God that though he has sinned, yet he has not received what his sins deserve. There is always, beloved, always, you're ready, ample supply of mercy. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says this, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And the question would be, you're, we're so arrogant. I'll go when I need help. When don't you need help? 
When is it right for a Christian to say, I don't need to go before the throne of grace. I do not need mercy right now. I do not need to find grace in this moment. If you ever think that, you need to repent right then and there. And now Jude says, this mercy, may God grant it to you. May it be your experience. It is always available to the saint, and it ought to remind you of God's goodness in saving you and of God's goal for you as a believer to live for and like Jesus. May mercy be multiplied to you. We'll talk about multiplied in just a minute. Second thing, in addition to mercy, Jude prays for peace. When we considered uh, the overwhelming nature of an apostate people and their practices, even as we did at the start of this message, the sense of calm and restfulness can be seemingly foreign and impossible. How do we have peace in a culture that's doing what our culture is doing to us and even creeping into the church? We pray for peace. How do we have peace when we murder one million babies a year in the name of women's health? How do we have peace when our culture and, our, and the courts are allowing and in some cases mandating the mutilation of our children's bodies in the name of, well, there's no name for it except evil. You might recall that the word peace is not simply the absence of hostilities, for the believer, peace is an awareness that in the work of Christ, his sins are completely forgiven, that he stands be right before God, and he is utterly assured of God's love and presence. Now, when you are surrounded by the horrors of evil run amok, doesn't it stand to reason that we should pray that we would experience peace in the midst of all of that? The believer needs to be reminded of his position in Christ, that the sins around him that will bring the wrath of God will not bring the believer down. Recall the words of Jesus to his disciples in John 14. John 14, I think we have this for you. Maybe. Am I lying? I'm lying. They know back there. Okay. Listen to what Jesus said. In John 14, 27, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You see, it's the peace of God. Knowing that you're in right with, you're right with God because of Christ. That's the peace of Christ. And Jude's praying for that. This peace belongs to all who have called upon the name of the Lord to be saved. This peace belongs to all who are born again. This peace belongs to all who have been transformed by the power of the gospel. And I ask you, do you have this peace? That though the world around you is hostile and evil and seeks your demise, you are the called, the loved, the kept, and you are receiving from God mercy and peace. But there's one more. The final quality in this triad is that of love. May I remind you that love is the highest of the Christian virtues and morality. Here, then, is a prayer for believers to possess and to practice the very attribute. You ready for this? To practice the very attribute that was the motivation for the Father sending his son, Jesus, 
to be our Savior. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Even as God has loved us, we are to experience and practice that love. The, we've given the definition so many times. I have it up here that love is a, a one-way unconditional act of the will, an attitude of the heart that seeks the highest good for another regardless of the cost and all for the glory of God. Let me remind you of what this love looks like, this love that you and I are to possess and practice, this love that is prayed for now for believers who stand in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. What does this love look like? And I don't have to make it up. God tells us what it looks like. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. What does love look like, people? This is what the prayer is, that this be your experience abundantly. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. How are you doing, by the way? We're not even halfway through. How's your patience? How's your kindness? How's your jealousy? Are you braggadocious or arrogant? Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, seeking the benefit of the other, the glory of God. Love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. And the final analysis is this. Love never fails. What better prayer can be prayed for a group of believers in the midst of a hostile and crooked generation? May the love of God abound to you. Some of us have read this passage too many times. We've seen it on greeting cards. So let me read it again, only this time from the amplified version so that we get a little depth and wonder of what's being said. I hope this helps you feel it a little bit deeper. Love endures long as, and is patient and kind. Love never is envious or boils over with jealousy, is not boastful or vainglorious, does not display itself haughtily. It is not conceited, arrogant, and inflated with pride. It is not rude, unmannerly, and does not act unbecomingly. Love, God's love in us, does not insist on its own rights or, on its, or its own way, for it is not self-seeking. It is not touchy or fretful or resentful. It takes no account of the evil that is done to it. It pays no attention to a suffered wrong. It does not rejoice at injustice and unrighteousness, but rejoices when right and truth prevail. Love bears up under anything and everything that comes, is ever ready to believe the best of every person, its hopes and faithless. Um, its hopes are fadeless under all circumstances, and it endures anything, everything without weakening. 
Love never fails, never fades out or becomes obsolete or comes to an end. Wow. These things, mercy, peace, and love are prayed for the readers of this letter. But notice how the prayer ends now. It is not simply may, great, may mercy, peace, and love be yours. Although that might have been sufficient. No, it's may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. The verb multiplied means to increase to full measure or overflowing. It is getting more than you can handle. It is being inundated with these things. It speaks of generosity and liberality in the receiving of these blessings. Remember, this is a prayer. And so what is Jude praying for? What might we pray for? Jude's asking the Lord to literally flood the lives of believers with mercy, peace, and love. Jude's prayer is that his readers would continually enjoy to overflowing the Lord's blessing, regardless of how difficult the spiritual battle around them becomes. Such blessings are clearly now the possession of those whom God has called, who has, God has loved, and whom God has kept for Jesus. With such great blessings, though, I submit to you come great responsibility. We are not granted abundant mercy, peace, and love to quietly skate by. Believers are going to be called in this book to one great task. And what is that great task? It's expressed in verse 3, that in light of the fact that you are the called, you are the loved, you are the kept, in light of the fact that we're praying always that mercy and peace and love be multiplied and overflowing to you, in light of all of those things, will you now, contend earnestly for the faith will you stand up for the truth will you be unrelenting when it comes to saying here is what God's word has said that will be the subject for our next message for this morning the question really revolves around the status of your soul are you born again have you trusted in Christ and his death as sufficient payment for your sin before God? Has such a trust translated for you into a changed life, a converted life, a life that desires to live increasingly for Jesus and his glory? Such a life reflects then that you've been called and loved and kept for Jesus. If, you're, if your life reflects to others or you recognize that despite your profession of faith, your heart really is not for Christ, then I ask you this morning, will you repent? Be changed. Change your mind concerning yourself. Change your mind and know that you are a sinner and that Christ is your Savior, that he has promised that if you come to him, here's his promise, I will not turn you away. And for believers, I call you to consider your status and your blessed condition before God. God has not saved you for you to continue living for yourself, not to maintain some kind of earthly peace, but to live a life that glorifies him, to live a life that demonstrates the reality of his spirit within you, to demonstrate before this world that you have a relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. May we always proclaim the truth, even that even a dog 
if we say that his tail is a leg, still only has four legs. Let us be a people committed to knowing and proclaiming and living the truth of God. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the word this morning. We, I do pray that you would overwhelm us with the sense of our position in Christ, called, loved, kept, those who are the abundant recipients of mercy, peace, and love. Help us to realize you, God, have called us to salvation, and you will bring us safely through to the end. You will hold us fast. And for this, we give you praise in Jesus' name.